Good evening, everyone. Um, a big warm welcome if you are new in the house tonight. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Amy, and I've been coming along to Orgate for about three years now. During the week, I'm a midwife um, slash educator with kind of a perpetual side-serving of student. I'm always studying. Um, and on a Sunday night, you can generally find me on the left-hand side, somewhere between the mid to back section. Um, but one of the great things about this church is that everyone's contribution is welcome and, in fact, encouraged. Um, so I'm uh, very grateful to uh, be able to share with you guys tonight and keen to get into God's Word together. It's a big one. There's no two ways about that. For the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the letter Romans, which was written by Paul. And suffice it to say, he was not a man who was known for his chill. <laughs> Literally one time he preached for so long into the night that a guy died. Uh, if you're only just joining in... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try not to do that tonight. Um, but if you're joining in, um, the themes that he's laid down so far are that all people are sinners that the law cannot address that, and that Jesus alone is the one who saves us. So, you know, heavy stuff. Just to recap, in the previous chapter, Paul was driving home the point that nothing other than faith in Jesus can make us righteous in God's sight. Sam preached a cracker on that last week, so if you didn't listen to it, jump on the podcast and catch it later. He did Elsa, Frozen, let it go, it had it all, so <laughs> you won't regret it. But tonight, we're picking up at the beginning of chapter 5, and we're going to work our way through verses 1 to 11. What we're going to find is that because faith in Jesus has saved us, we now stand in the undeserved love and favour of God. We have cause for unshakable hope because we belong to a good Father who not only saves us, but holds us so dear to him. And this life is going to hurt. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But being a Christian is a lot like playing the long game. God graciously uses it all to complete the good work in us that he promised to. And when it is finished, we are going to pass over into eternal glory. It's an amazing reminder not only of the purpose in pain, but also the certain hope that we're offered in Jesus. So before we get stuck in, I'm just going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for writing us the love letter that is the Bible. Um, and I just pray that as we go to unpack it, that these would be your words and not mine, um, that I would just be out of the way and that we would hear what you have to say, Lord. Um, and I just offer our hearts um, to you and just ask that you would soften them and prepare them for those words, God. In your son's name, amen. All right, we've got some serious ground to cover tonight. Um, the words are going to be on the screen um, and I'm in the ESV or English Standard Version tonight, but grab your phones or Bibles if you want to follow along. Paul opens with this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first up, we're reminded that through faith in Jesus and his defeat of sin and death on the cross, we have peace with God. The price for our freedom has been paid in full and we have been made right in the king's sight, declared completely blameless. We're saved. Amen? But note, Paul doesn't say that we have peace with the devil or this world 
or flesh or sin or any of the rest of it. He says we have peace with God. And to me, this lays the foundation for the the words that are to follow, that the Christian life is not going to be painless. There are still going to be battles to fight. But when we're in Christ, it's no longer against God that we're fighting and that we have him on our side. He fights on our behalf. Paul then goes on to say that we stand in grace, that through our faith in Jesus, we're not only saved, but we've been brought into a place of undeserved privilege where we stand firm, safe and secure. We can confidently look to the future with hope, knowing that we will share in God's eternal glory because we are his sons and daughters. So it is through faith that we are saved, by grace that we are held, and in love that we know hope. What I have noticed of Paul's writing is that he often kind of uses bookends um, in his passages, and I think that's true of this one too. We're about to dive into a word around suffering, but before we do, we have to grasp the gospel Jesus and his death and his resurrection that are the bedrock of our hope. Because if we don't, when we suffer, and it's when, not if, when we suffer, we'll most likely run from God rather than to him. We might see him as that quintessential 1950s dad, like from happy days with punishment up his sleeve. Or we might see him as like this disengaged deity that's carved in stone and he doesn't really have any personal regard for us. And in doing that, we forget that he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us on the cross and to bring us into eternal relationship with him. Or the other thing that we might do if we don't have a firm grasp of the gospel is try to endure suffering in our strength. And when we do that, we set ourselves up for one of two things. Either we straight up fail or we become massive flexors. (laughs) But when we anchor ourselves in the grace of the gospel, the game changes. Come what may, on this earth, we can be joyful and hopeful because of who God is, what he has done for us, and what he promises is yet to come. And they're ideas that are unpacked further as we go through the following verses. So... With peace and grace through faith as the foundation, Paul then hits us with some pretty big stuff to wrestle with. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We don't have to live long in this world to figure out that it is complex and it involves as much pain as it does joy. Maybe you're journeying loneliness um, or sickness or infertility, mental health issues, unfulfilled dreams. Maybe like me, you're walking through loss and grief. But if what Paul says here is true, then suffering doesn't contradict the promises that we have in Christ. In fact, what is indicated here is that God can take that hard stuff and he can use it in our lives to bring us even greater blessing. And I want to be really careful here because when you're in that acute state of ache, it can be really difficult to reconcile this idea with your experience. And I completely understand that. Most of you um, who know me would know about my mum, but for those of you who didn't, 
Um, she journeyed through cancer on and off for about 15 years and she finally passed over into glory last year. And it has taken me serious time to be able to sit in the tension that exists between being deeply sad that she's gone and deeply grateful that God didn't let that go to waste. But he actually used that experience to transform my heart. And it's a really complex place to be in. But I do wholeheartedly believe that whilst God cries with us, he can use that pain for his glory and for our good. Tim Keller puts it like this. Suffering is meaningful. There is purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. My mum loved to write, and before she died, uh, she and I began transcribing her many diaries. Often by diaries, I mean it was like hurried notes on the backs of receipts or torn envelopes, and you're trying to piece it all together. She wasn't the most organised woman in the world, and I can say that because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, but the words she penned at the time of her first cancer diagnosis I found um, particularly profound. She wrote, Cancer, great. I don't know that I would have chosen this as a ministry. Still, it's a chapter of my life that the Lord has allowed, and so I'm going to be okay with it. I already really am. And that is precisely how she viewed that disease right to the very end, an opportunity to honour and glorify the God that sustained her. Brie and Jamie would testify to this. Even in her last days, she was singing worship songs from her bed. Keith Green was getting an absolute belting. (laughs) And she was just like declaring over and over that she wouldn't change one moment of the journey that brought her so close to him. Not one moment. And I remember during one of our sleepovers near the end and she woke at about like four o'clock in the morning and I do not function in mornings. It's um, a couple of coffees and 10am before you'll get heaps out of me. Uh, So after I'd given her some pain relief and settled her back down, I just gently suggested um, perhaps we'd try and go back to sleep. And she looked at me like I'd gone insane and she said, sleep? I'm too excited to sleep. I want to rejoice. And I gave her a smile like, cute, like, maybe later. (laughs) But she just stared back at me with this intensity, and I was like, no, okay, we're doing it, cool. So I put on some music, and and I did my best to sing along with her, but to be honest, I was just so deeply moved listening to her because she meant it. She meant every word. And it wasn't because she liked pain or misery. She wasn't a martyr, but because mum understood what these verses teach us about the trials of life producing things that we can be thankful for. Before we unpack them, though, I think there's an important disclaimer to make here. Suffering can produce all these things, but not necessarily. We don't have to look very far within our own human hearts to know that suffering can easily birth anger, bitterness, resentment, even hatred. It's only because of the grace of God that Paul opened with that we can face it differently. Only because of the spirit inside of us that we can bear good fruit under harsh conditions. Charles Spurgeon is one of my all-time favourite preachers, and he put it like this. Tribulation worketh patience, says the apostle. Naturally, it is not so. 
Tribulation worketh impatience, and impatience misses the fruit of experience and sours into hopelessness. Ask many who have buried a dear child or who have lost their wealth or have suffered pain of body, and they will tell you that the natural result of affliction is to produce irritation against providence, rebellion against God, questioning, unbelief, petulance, and all sorts of evils. But what a wonderful alteration takes place when the heart is renewed by the Holy Spirit. It's so true. The ability to face suffering rightly and to hold fast when times are tough is purely a God-given grace and it requires the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. About two years before the end of mum's life, um, she started to deteriorate and so I moved back in uh, to try and uh, more formally share her care with my dad, which was well harder than I ever could have imagined. Um, Watching my mum suffer and my dad sorrow like that was seriously rough. And I was not in a spiritually strong place at the time either. Now, I was raised in the kind of home that banned Harry Potter and gave all of our pets biblical names. Um, So I knew Jesus. um, But if I'm honest with myself, I wasn't following him. Not earnestly. I was out there doing my own thing. And so at first, I didn't face the hard stuff rightly at all. My brain just felt soaked in the sadness of it all and I was frustrated and impatient and at times pretty self-pitying. And I remember one particularly difficult morning. Mum was in a lot of pain and nothing could settle her and I'd tried a bunch of different things with no success and so I hopped in the car uh, to go to the chemist and I just bawled all the way to Stirling. I was so overwhelmed with frustration um, that we all had to go through what felt like such senseless agony. And I tried to pray, and I remember shaking the steering wheel, like we are talking proper hot mess. Like, and I just said, God, at least do something with all of this. Like, You obviously aren't taking it away, so could you at least use it to teach me something? And I can only imagine in that moment that God looked at me with tenderness, um, but also like... Yeah, I can, sweet baby thing, yeah. (laughs) I have been waiting to hear you say those words. I had no idea what he had already done in my heart to get me to that place, to pray that prayer. And I had no idea how he intended to answer that when I leaned in. The time that followed wasn't practically any easier, but the game did change. I started to recognise glimpses of God's hand like when he'd enable me to do something really hard and instead of wallowing in a pity party afterwards, I was reminded that actually he meets our weaknesses with his perfect strength. Or he'd give me just the right words to say in the dark hours of the night when mum had her desperate moments of pain and fear. And I'd be reminded of how even with all our inadequacies, he chooses to use us as his hands and feet. He used that time to squeeze some of the selfishness out of me. He grew my very underdeveloped patience. Still got a ways to go, but... um, And he built in me a sense of peace that no longer depended on external factors. I read once that God is doing a billion things in our lives at any given moment, and we're only ever aware of, like, a few of them. And I really believe that to be true, but I think he strategically highlights those few so that we're reminded that he's there and we're encouraged that he's working for our good. 
Heightening our awareness of him is such a gracious gift, especially when life hurts. Of course, we won't ever see or know all that God does, but he does reveal parts of it to us in his word. I've heard people say before that the question should not be why we suffer, but rather how we suffer. And I do understand where they're coming from, but I actually think that's of little comfort to you when you're hurting. One of the first questions we tend to ask is, why God? Like even Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God cried out in desperation. And so I think it would be insane for us to pretend that we don't or even tell ourselves that we shouldn't. But here Paul does give us four pretty profound truths that highlight purpose in pain. They give us cause to rejoice and they remind us of the hope that we have for much more than just this life. Firstly, suffering produces endurance. Endurance is one of those words that we tend to hear most often used with regard to exercise, and I actually think that's quite a helpful illustration. To build physical endurance, we have to ride out the discomfort, and the end result is a greater capacity uh, to run further, to lift more, to spar longer. We don't just give up our squat challenge because it's hard, right? We're playing the long game, so we wait out the burn. And similarly, there are hard things in life that are going to bring us to our knees. But when we don't give up on our faith, when we continue to trust in God and patiently wait for his deliverance, our capacity to withstand the trials of life is developed. And not only that, but because the ability to do so comes from God, He's glorified in it. His strength is demonstrated in our weakness. And I know that that is very easy to say and terribly hard to do. As humans, I think we tend to endure hardship better when we know the end point. You know, whether we're sick or lonely or we're watching people suffer, um, waiting for breakthrough or maybe promises that have yet to come to pass. What tends to really do us in is the not knowing In the last few days of my mum's life, she fell unconscious, and I don't think I will ever adequately be able to describe how much that hurt. The entire Eden fam had set up at mum and dad's house, so there was like 14 of us under the one roof, um, and we were all just anxiously hovering about, and it's like our hearts were groaning, like, how long, Lord? But then my dad said to me, or to all of us actually, he said, hey... I know it's hard and I don't want to see her like this either. But hold on because I believe God still has stuff to teach us in these final days. And he was right. When I look back, I can see that God was gently sanding back our rough edges. He was teaching us what it meant to be steady and faithful to him and to one another. To run from the hard stuff breeds timidity But in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, Paul reminds us that God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Rather, he gave us one of power, love and self-discipline. If we take God's hand and we face the suffering in his strength, then it can transform us into a people who stand firm in his promises no matter what we face. We then read that endurance produces character. And when I first read that, I had to wrestle with it a bit because I most often hear the word character used with regard to individuality 
Or maybe like when a man is trying to find something diplomatic to say about a woman's oversized earrings or like her pom-pom clutch and you're like, mm, thoughts on my feature nail. Mm, well, you know, that's got character. Um, but I was like, oh, doesn't really fit. Um, so I went back to the Greek like to think about it some more. And here's what I found. The Greek word that Paul used was actually dokime. And what that means is an approved tried character or a specimen of tried worth. Then I trawled through a few other um, translations and commentaries and found some other words as well, like testedness, authenticity, and spiritual maturity. And so I put it all together, and what I think that Paul is saying here is this. When we persevere through suffering and we don't give up on our faith, we are proven authentic and genuine in our relationship with God. A little while ago, I was sitting in the tea room and a colleague was talking about her newest love interest. Um, so it's the best part of morning tea. Um, and she said, you know, well, we had our first disagreement and we came out the other side, so I feel like it's totally for real. He's the one. And I smiled to myself like, oh, maybe, you know, pump the brakes a tad there. Um, but I did understand what she was saying in the sense that there is a certain sense of confirmation that is birthed when the going gets tough and we stick around. In suffering, the gold of our faith is put through the fire and when it comes out refined rather than consumed, we can know that we have been tested deeply and found to be unwaveringly God's. The hard times do have a unique way of helping us realise the extent and the depth of our devotion to Jesus. And if the purpose of this life was purely pleasure, then hardship would be the kind of devastating blow that would rob us of our belief in or our allegiance to God. But we know that that's not the purpose of this life. There will be pleasure embedded, absolutely. There are going to be seasons of dancing given for us to enjoy. But ultimately, the purpose of this life is to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so if that's the long game we're playing, then this proven character is something that we can be thankful for, even though we may grieve the cost of it. Spiritual maturity helps us move from a childlike state of mistaking adversity for the absence or the ambivalence of God and into a rich, lived experience of his goodness, even amidst pain. We reject the idea that easy somehow means that he loves us and instead adopt respect for his sovereignty and for his wisdom. We aren't always going to love um, or even understand every part of it and there are always going to be things that we wish were different about the journey. But we can trust him because he's the same God that Paul opened with, the God that has saved us and showered us with undeserved privilege. And when we do, when we stand in the midst of pain and we say, God is still God, he is still good, and I trust him, then we bring him glory. Next, we read that character produces hope. And that makes a lot of sense. As we become more like Christ, we grow in eternal perspective and that provides us with hope that no matter what, one day we are going to be in paradise with him and everything is going to be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. I think one of the biggest lies that Satan would have us believe is that there is nothing beyond the here and now. 
if you think about it, one of the taglines of our generation is literally YOLO. The idea that we, you know, only live once. And when he fools us into that kind of tunnel vision, what happens is that our battle wounds start to become magnified and we forget that actually we have a saviour who has already secured the victory of the war. That's already been done. But when we walk with Jesus, we know better than that. Suffering might be a threat to our temporary happiness, absolutely. But it is no threat to our eternal joy in God. This life does not end in suffering or brokenness or even death for us, but rather in glory and wholeness and everlasting fellowship with him. That's the long game. In a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul penned these words. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And on that proven character thing, just quickly, I think perhaps the rough patches in our lives actually help to give us victory over some of the little fears that we carry around. I work at a university, and so they brief all the new staff at induction on imposter syndrome. The gist of which is, it's actually quite common to feel like deep down you're a fraud. So like one day, yeah, you might get a real job and you might get your name on the door and all of that, but you're still going to be looking over your shoulder wondering when someone's going to call you out for being a fake adult. And as a side note, I was honestly so relieved that I was not the only one. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's me. Um, but as I was preparing for tonight, I was reminded of that because um, I think it can be the same with faith sometimes. Some people wonder if they're really saved. Others wonder if they're genuine. Some people approach God with that spirit of orphanship rather than that spirit of sonship. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we fear no evil because God is with us, that builds confidence in us as his children. The Bible talks about our faith being like tempered steel, um, which means heated for the purpose of strengthening. And that's such a helpful visual, I reckon. When our trust in God withstands the heat and it comes out the other side stronger, we can take heart in the fact that we are genuinely his and therefore we will inherit the glory of our Father forever. Then the fourth truth we are given is that the hope we have because of our tested faith, tested faith will not be disappointed. We have every reason to hope for eternal glory with the God whose love we have experienced in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that perfect love is for all of us, all the time, no matter what is going on. But I do think that sometimes we can be more receptive to it in pain. When we're in the fire and every other source of our comfort has burned away, sometimes I think we're able to better appreciate the brightness and the beauty of God's love. Or at least, maybe, what it is, is that we better recognise our desperate need for it. As Tim Keller points out, it's that love that fortifies us for any difficulty this life has in store. It's what we need more than anything, and because Jesus gave us his spirit, we have it in abundance. In saying that, suffering is rough, 
And as I said at the start, there's a complex tension between seeing the good and grieving the cost. We're humans. And there will always be days in those seasons where we feel distracted or disappointed or dry in our faith. And sometimes God's love just feels a little bit distant. But Paul is all over that too. Like any good teacher, he then connects the subjective experience of God's love with the objective details of it. So he draws our attention to the depth and perfection of God's love, appealing to our heads with logic and reason for the times when we're just not feeling it in our hearts. He writes this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, making a sacrifice for someone that you find to be grateful is one thing. Hard at times, but potentially doable depending on the stakes that we're talking. But to make a sacrifice for someone who doesn't want a bar of you at the time, that's a whole other level. Remember when you were a kid and you'd get sick and your mum or your dad would stay up with you all night, full well knowing that you would probably turn around tomorrow when you were feeling better and chuck your spaghetti at them or tell them to stay in the car because they're embarrassing or something. It's kind of like that, but on steroids. Because this is God becoming man, taking on the sin of the world and paying the price with his blood, all for a people who continually disobey, dishonour and deny him. We can know how dearly our Father loves us because he sent his precious son to die for us while we were still living in rebellion to him. The depth of his love for us is demonstrated in the degree of his sacrifice and how wholly undeserving we were to receive it at the time. And because it's a free gift that we didn't earn, we can't lose it either. God's love reflects his character, not ours. You know the grand gesture in every romantic movie that we wait for? Like the guy navigates a traffic jam um, and he um, runs to the airport and he buys a really expensive ticket and boards the plane over the intercom. He's telling the girl he wants to grow old together. Which I think potentially when I wrote that, I was just thinking of The Wedding Singer. But um, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, This is it. Jesus is the ultimate grand gesture. And he came at a time when we were most unlovable. That's when God did it. And I love the emphasis of the words at the right time too. Galatians 4 verse 4 says a similar thing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, It might have seemed a little late to some, but Jesus' work on the cross was done at the perfect time in God's big plan. His timing was just right for us, and so we can be assured that it will continue to be so. Blessings, breakthroughs, deliverance, growth, they don't always come when or even how we wished or imagined but they do come in times and ways that are most glorifying to him and most beneficial for us. God is never late, and we can trust his plan, even when things look bleak, because his Father's heart is unchanging. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this, 
God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. We won't always see or understand in this life, I don't think. We weren't meant to. Because if we did, it wouldn't be faith. I still have days where I feel winded by the stuff that I've seen or remembering that actually I won't hug my mum again on this earth. But when I prepared this message, I read through the wider letter of Romans for context and my heart was so strengthened by these words from chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And it reminded me that our vision is limited, and half the time we don't even know what we most dearly need. But the Spirit does, and he's standing in that gap for us. So if you're going through something, I just want to stand in solidarity with you and encourage you that God will and is fighting for us. All we have to do is call on that spirit and he will fill us with perfect love that steadies our feet, breathes peace into our hearts and gives us cause for joy even amidst the pain. I love that he put that word on your heart, Cassia, because his perfect love drives out fear. And if you're not currently going through something, then I just want to encourage you that these words prepare you for when you do. Because suffering is warfare, and a sound understanding of the immeasurable love of God is our best defence. And with that, Paul then plants the other bookend to this passage, and he brings us back to the gospel. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Justification is legal language. And so we are reminded that we have been made right with God through the blood of Jesus. But reconciliation? Well, that's the language of friendship. And so we are reminded that because of Jesus, we now stand in a place of undeserved privilege with a heavenly Father who loves us in immeasurable amounts. Our attention is drawn both to his death and his life. And again, I think that's pretty significant. We don't just have a saviour who sacrificed himself on our behalf. That would have been pretty amazing in and of itself. But no, we actually have a saviour who in the process defeated death. Jesus rose again and he is literally right now seated at the right hand of God, praying for us all, all the time. And even in our most desperate grief, our greatest need is not that which we have lost but it's him. In John chapter 15, we find the story of Lazarus and Jesus looks Martha in the eyes as she mourns for her brother. And do you know what he says? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's not that he wasn't um, moved by her sorrow. Um, in verse 33, we, we were told that he was greatly troubled by it and he actually did act uh, to change things. But even the good gift of her brother's resurrection paled in comparison to the ultimate gift of Jesus' resurrection. 
our Saviour lives and when we are sure of who we are in him, what do we possibly have to fear in the details of this life? If God showed such dramatic love to us when we were enemies, then we can be confident that there is only much more in store for his friends. Suffering can and will wound us, and it might even leave a scar on this earth. But as Paul writes later in chapter 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, they're like my favourite verses in the Bible. I'm going to ask the band to come up now, and as they do, I just want to leave you with one final thought. When it comes to some things in life, I think you earn the right to speak with authority on them, and suffering is most certainly one of them. Paul suffered greatly in his life and his ministry. We know that. And he speaks to us of a saviour who humbled himself to take on the form of man. Jesus experienced a loneliness and an injustice and a torture far greater than any human before him or after him. I visited Israel late last year, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, I read these words. Jesus, in deepest night and agony, you spoke words of trust and surrender to God the Father in Gethsemane. In love and gratitude, I want to say to you in times of fear and distress, my Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. And I was so deeply moved by that reminder that Jesus has gone before us in all things. He leads by example and he stands in solidarity with us when it hurts. Tim Keller puts it like this. He plunged himself into our furnace so that when we find ourselves in the fire, we can turn to him and know that we will not be consumed but made into a people great and beautiful. Great and beautiful. The Japanese have an art of repairing pottery with gold or, silver crack, uh, gold or silver, and it reconciles the pieces that have been cracked or broken. And it's based on the understanding um, that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. And if we face it rightly, this passage tells us that suffering can make us more beautiful too. We can bear the gold and silver cracks of endurance and character and hope, all of which point to the great God who enables us to bear that kind of fruit. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he not only saved us, but he gave us his spirit 
and therefore we can stand firm in the perfect love and the promises of God. As a friend of mine often says, it won't always be easy, but it will be good. We're playing the long game, and in the end, we are going to live to rejoice in the glory of God forever. We're going to head back into a time of worship now, but if any of this has hit close to the bone for you, then please know that the prayer team will be up the front, and they would love to pray with you. And if that is too horrifying a thought, then head down the back and someone will find you. I'll just quickly pray for us now and then we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us first and for sending your Son to save us so that we might not only be in right standing but also loving relationship with you. In times of suffering, help us to rejoice in you. Please fill us with the Spirit so that our hearts are strengthened by your love and softened for the work of transformation. Thank you for your promise to continue working in us until the day of completion when we will know eternal glory because of our faith in Jesus. It's in his precious name that we bring these things before you. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.